So it's interesting, uh, I, I've mentioned a couple times before that I'm celebrating 25 years of ordained pastoral ministry this year. And the reason I was reminded of that this week is that I've done over 20 uh, Palm Sunday messages. <laughs> and the reason that's important is because you guys need to empathize with me. If you've ever read the Palm Sunday texts, there's just a few of them in the Gospels, and three of them are repeats, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, and John's is relatively brief, so there's just only so much you can say about Palm Sunday. And so over the last few years, I've gotten to every Palm Sunday, and I just say, Lord, literally, Lord, what can I say that I haven't already said? I mean, it's not a complicated story. I mean, we teach our first graders, they're doing Palm Sunday today, and we'll tell them this. We'll tell them that Palm Sunday is about a man riding into town, and that man is Jesus, and the town is? Some of you guys never went to Sunday school. Get with the program. <laughs> The town is Jerusalem, and maybe, maybe I do need to teach on Palm Sunday still. But <laughs> So the man is Jesus, the town is Jerusalem, and, and that's what Palm Sunday is. It's the beginning of Jesus' last week on earth before his death and resurrection, and we celebrate it as Christians because it's the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem to begin that very last week. And so the reason we call it Palm Sunday, as many of you know, is because as he rode on a donkey into Jerusalem, the crowds laid palm branches at his feet, hence the name Palm Sunday. So as I was thinking about that this week and thinking, well, what you know, new and fresh thing could we say about Palm Sunday? I asked God to give me some insight into that, and I really feel like he did. Because as I was sitting in my home office and, and even one point took a walk just to meditate on Palm Sunday, the thought that hit me was that as much as we will tell our kids that Palm Sunday is about Jesus riding into town, and it is, that just scratch a little bit deeper and what Palm Sunday is really about is Jesus riding into people's lives. That if you and I were to sit down and read the gospel accounts together of all the stuff that happens in this last week of Jesus' life before his death and resurrection, that we will read about interactions with his disciples, Peter and John and James. We'll read about interactions with Mary, with Pilate, with Judas, with Doubting Thomas. I mean, there's going to be so many relational interactions once he hits Jerusalem that really... Uh, what's happening this Palm Sunday is that Jesus is riding into people's very lives. And once that thought hit me, I kind of then teleported it to the 21st century, and, and I thought this, you know, he still does that today. It, it, it very much Palm Sunday is a figurative picture of what Jesus wants to do for you and I today. That just as he rode into Jerusalem and rode into people's lives back then, he's still in the habit of doing that today of riding into people's very lives, yours and mine, in profound ways. And so that's why I've entitled our message, Has Jesus Risen, Ridden into Your Life? Because that's the question that I want you to wrestle with this morning. Has Jesus truly ridden into your life? And if you and I were having a cup of coffee and you said yes, I'd fire back at you right away, but how? And how do you know? I mean, it's one thing to say that Jesus has ridden into your life, but how would you know that he has ridden into your life? And what would you show me or demonstrate to me to show that he has? I mean, Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. 
He has a spiritual ministry uh, today as he enters into people's lives. And, and we can't always see, feel, taste, and touch all of that. We feel, but we don't always empirically see it. So how do we know in our souls, in our, in our spirits, even in our experiences, that Jesus has ridden into our lives? Now, the Bible has a pretty clear answer to that initially. And that's at 1 John 5, verse 13 says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And what that tells us is that the first and most primary way that you and I discern whether Jesus has ridden into our life is whether or not, duh, we have faith and trust in him, right? So if you've come to the point, like we saw with our baptism people, in which you've trusted in Christ, you believe in him, the Bible says you have assurance that he has ridden into your life, that you have salvation. That's very clear. But it's interesting. Most theologians will point out, and the Bible confirms this, that there's a bunch of also secondary evidences, other markers, if you will, that we can look to in our lives to really add some teeth and grit to this idea of has Jesus really ridden into your life? And those are the things that I want to address this Palm Sunday in our time remaining. And I kind of had fun with this this week because I, as I was thinking about the totality of Jesus' life and ministry, I realized that all the different segments of Jesus' life and ministry, now bear with me here, actually become kind of markers or barometers of things that he has brought into this world and into our very lives that, that show us and that kind of act as markers of whether he has really ridden into our lives. What do I mean by that? I want you to look up here on the screen. I'm going to give all four of them up, to you, uh, up front to you right now, and then I'm going to walk you through each of these. These are four segments of Jesus' life and ministry that each bring with them a certain aspect of himself into our very lives individually and that we can use as barometers or markers of whether or not he has ridden into our lives. So they are his incarnation, God becoming man, his presence with us, his very life, his perfect life, which is his righteousness modeled for us, his death, which becomes his forgiveness of us, and then his resurrection, what we're going to celebrate next Sunday, that becomes his victory in us. So, so look closely at that list, guys. There's something that he has done with us, for us, of us, and in us. All markers that you and I can use to ask and answer, has he really ridden into our lives? And if so, how do we know? And so first, notice with me that we, through Jesus' incarnation, his birth, God becoming flesh, it brings his presence with us. The Bible couldn't have been more clear on this. Matthew 1, verse 23 says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, say it with me, God with us. So that was the whole point of Jesus' birth, was that God would now become a man and dwell with us. And so for 33 years, Jesus dwelt among us, and people sensed his presence, they experienced his presence, his teaching, his love, his grace, and eventually his death on a cross for their sins. And somebody's saying, yeah, but he's gone. I mean, he died and resurrected and ascended into heaven. Yeah, but have you, have you ever looked at his very, some of his very last words to us? Look at Matthew 28, verse 20. Look up here on the screen. Jesus says this, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
And so this idea of his presence given through his incarnation continues on. Uh, We call this the presence of Jesus in us and with us as followers of him. And he has promised, he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will always be with you. And so a huge part, folks, of him riding into our lives, shown in his incarnation, is this giving of his presence, this presence with us. So let's pause right now and let me ask you, do you experience his presence with you? As one who dares to claim that he has ridden into your life, what we're celebrating this Palm Sunday, do you have periodic if not regular times where you sense the presence of God in Christ with you. And I'm talking about those difficult times and those high times, the exciting times and the mundane times. Because you see, part and parcel of him riding into our lives is his presence with us. As I was preparing this for this week, I had an appointment on Thursday that just brought this home to me in in technicolor once again in a really relational way. I was meeting with a dear friend and having lunch with him, and this guy's had a a rough year, a rough year in in, in his uh, interpersonally and with his businesses and some other things. And so I was just sort of following up with him and saying, how you doing? And he was saying, yeah, it was a really rough year. I mean, one that I wasn't expecting and some really dark times. And then he said something that some of us have heard before, but it's always good news. He said, Jamie, I wouldn't trade this last year for anything. And I kind of knew why. I said, why? And he said, because in the midst of the difficulty and the darkness, God showed up and I sensed his presence and his goodness with me every step of the way. You see, a guy like that, don't miss this, has some clear evidence that Jesus has ridden into his life. Amen? I mean, it really is true. And I'll talk in a minute about what some of us do when we don't have evidence of that. We're going to wrap up with that in a minute here. But just for right now, not to weigh that one of the first evidences that he has ridden into your life is that at least periodically, if not regularly, we sense his presence, however that works for you, in your life. Now, hang on to that. And if you thought that first one was hard, it gets a little bit harder. But we'll, we'll get easier as we go along. But, but notice, secondly, that Jesus still rides into our lives today as seen in his life. When he was on this earth, his righteousness modeled for us. And you're saying, what's that about? Uh, Hebrews 4.15 is an interesting passage. The writer of Hebrews is commenting uh, on Jesus' life and the nature of his life as God come in the flesh, and he says this. He says, For we do not have a high priest, meaning Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. So it's an amazing passage. In one sense, it's saying that because Jesus was 100% human, but also 100% God, because he's 100% human, he can relate to you and me. Through all of our difficulties, our temptations, he knows what, it likes to be, what it's like to be trapped in a body, to be confined in a body, and have to deal with a fallen world all around us. And yet, at the same time, because he was 100% God, that's the beauty of the incarnation, he also was without sin. So a perfect human being. 
I remember a few years ago, I was watching The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, and, and I don't even know why he made this joke. I forget the context, but, but he surely understood this theological point when he, he made the comment. He said, can you imagine being Jesus' brother and having your mother look at you and say, why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? <laughs> and, and then Leno said, well, you know, because he's God, Mom. I mean, you know, how do you measure up to God? And I remember sitting there just going, my gosh, he stumbled onto a core aspect of Christian theology, namely the perfection of Jesus Christ. And now, why do you think that's important for you and me today? Listen, when Jesus rides into your life, he rides as the perfect Son of God who shows you what righteousness and love look like, perfectly lived out in hopes that as you faithfully follow him, you too will become more righteous and more loving. That's the plan. That's what God is up to. So when you and I say that he has ridden into our lives, part of what we're saying is that we're becoming more and more like him. And if we're not, we want to have to wonder to what extent has he ridden into our lives. C.S. Lewis was brilliant with this. C.S. Lewis, when he was writing years ago before he died, would talk about the goal of sanctification being to make a bunch of little Christs. And he didn't mean a bunch of little saviors of the known world. What he meant was is that we would become a bunch of people who, who, who live more and more like Jesus. And he's exactly right. Part of sanctification of you and I growing in our faith is to become more like Christ in our behavior, our feelings, our relational base, in our, in, our, in our attitudes. And that's part of him riding into our lives. But therein lies the great challenge, right? Because we live in a world today in which many people look at us, and I'm not here to get down on us today, but many people look at us and they don't always see it. That is a great story told by uh, E. Stanley Jones, who was a great Methodist missionary years ago, of when he was overseas and he met Gandhi, the passively resistant Hindu leader from India. And, and Jones asked him at one point, he said, Mr. Gandhi, though you quote the words of Christ often, why is it that you appear to so adamantly reject becoming his follower? To which Gandhi replied, oh, I don't reject Christ, I love Christ. It's just that so many of you Christians are unlike Christ. And he said, I just can't become a follower. You see, I think that's more common than we realize. I think sometimes people look at us and we talk a big game and say, Jesus has ridden into our lives. And then they see our behavior and they see us. And again, it's not that they expect perfection. They just expect an upward trajectory, right? As Chuck Swindoll said it years ago, it's three steps forward, two steps backward. That's okay. But if becoming two steps forward and four steps backward, that's the wrong direction. And so the reality is, is that if you and I say Jesus has ridden into our life, it's not just a matter of sensing his presence with us, though it's good, that's the incarnation. It's also a matter of are we becoming more like him in the way that we treat others and in the way that we behave in the world around us. I, I told you those first two were going to be hard for you. This, this third one, which is actually, I'll confess here in a second, is the most challenging one for me, I think a lot of people like. The third way that uh, Jesus rides into our life is through his death, his forgiveness of us. 
This is so core to Christian theology, it's unmistakable. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. Here it is. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And so core to our Christian, now don't miss this word, experience is the forgiveness of some of our sins. No, that's not true. It's the forgiveness of many of our sins. No, 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 you guys are about to rebel on me. It's the forgiveness, say it with me, of all of our sins. How many times do Christians not really believe that? Do you know what that word all means? Past, yeah, it does mean all. Past, (laughs) present, and future. If God is sovereign and he knows everything about you in this world, and he does, then he knows every sin that you're going to commit between now and when you die. And what the Bible says is that the blood of Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in him, covers all of those sins. So there's nothing you're going to do between now and when you die that is not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ if you are a follower and believer in him. It's an amazing truth that he has forgiven us all of our sins. Now now here's where the challenge comes in, however. We say that he has ridden into our lives and forgiven us all of our sins. And many of us know this. But the question becomes, do we really feel it? And is it really changing us? Let me be the first in line uh, on this one. I don't know why, but for ever since I was a little guy, I'm 50 years old, and ever since I was a little guy, I, I, I have just always felt guilty for everything. Uh, some of you have the opposite problem, so you're going to want to ignore this illustration. <laughs> but, but for me, I think one of the reasons I might even become a pastor is because I have an extremely sensitive spirit. And you can ask my wife and, and family, I just feel guilty for everything. My, my, my dad would tell you that. I, I mean, something goes wrong at the church, it's my fault. You know, something happens with the kids, well, we must have parented wrong. Uh, something happens with a friend, well, I must have said something wrong. You know, something happens in my marriage, well, Kim, would you say it's my fault? But that's beside the point. <laughs> I, I, I'd say it even before her. And, and so as a result of that, I tend to walk around with a lot of guilt. And even though I know that Jesus has forgiven me for all of my sins, I've spent way too much of my adult world, guys, Walking around with guilt I don't need to walk around with. When I turned 50 a few months ago, I was evaluating what I want the next decade of my life to be like. Doing a lot of evaluating. One of the things I said to my dear wife Kim is I said, you know, I just said, I really want to just set set a marker today that I want to stop feeling guilty for being alive. (laughs) I want to stop feeling guilty for all the things because I know I'm a sinner in need of grace, but I've been given grace I said, I want to start living a free and liberating life. And I got to tell you, over the last few months, there have been many of you that have tried to make me feel guilty for certain things. (laughs) And I just want you to know it's going to be an uphill climb for you as long as that I'm here. Because I really am working on my soul. Now, how can I do it? Because of this. See, See, I know he's written into my life. I know that. But part of my experience now needs to catch up to that. And so even for me today, as I was evaluating this week, me, with Jesus writing into my life, this one is huge for me. I've committed to start experiencing more and more in my spirit, and even in my emotional base, his forgiveness of all of my sin. 
So his presence is with us. His, uh, his righteousness is with us. His forgiveness is with us. And, and, and then lastly, and we'll put this all together, we have Jesus' resurrection, his victory in us. Now, what's that about? Many Christians don't realize this, but the most powerful chapter, I believe, on the resurrection is not found in the Gospels, though it tells us he was resurrected. It's actually found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul the Apostle spends almost 60 verses talking about the resurrection of Jesus and equating it to our someday resurrection as followers of him. And toward the tail end of this chapter, in a, in a potent little verse, verse 57, he says this. He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's talking about the resurrection and says that we have victory. And the key question you and I should be asking is, well, what kind of victory? <laughs> the list is endless. Victory from besetting sin, victory from nagging temptation, victory from the tendency to fall back into old patterns. We all know what I'm talking about there. So this would include everything from snapping at loved ones to cutting corners at work to being stingy with our money to not prioritizing those in need uh, to, the, to the laziness when it comes to our spiritual disciplines. I mean, just think right now, please, in your mind's eye, just think of the things that you're struggling with right now. We all have them. Here's what God has said. I rose from the dead to give you victory. I rose from the dead so that you would have the potential to not allow those things to keep getting the best of you. And so part of Jesus riding into our lives, it's the good news. It's not just that he is with us. It's not just that he models righteousness for us. It's not even just that he has forgiven us, though all that is true. It's also that he gives us the potential in each and every moment of the day to have victory. Paul the Apostle believed this so strong that in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Amen? Amen. And see, I think we forget this sometimes. We've just been so used to getting beaten down. Time after time again, we finally just go, well, I guess it'll be like this till I die. And you know, the reality is it doesn't have to be. The reality is, is that he gives us victory. That's part and parcel of him riding into our lives. And again, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So a man rides into town. That's Palm Sunday. But even more, a man rides into people's lives. That's what this Holy Week will be about. And Jesus still is in the habit of doing that today. And when he does ride into our lives, make no mistake, he brings his very presence. He models for us what obedience looks like. He forgives all of our sin. And he gives us victory over sin and death. All through his incarnation, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Who could think that God has been so good? So let me ask you one last time before we wrap up. Has Jesus ridden in to your life? You say, yes, he has, because I believe in him. Good. Is there any other evidence that you see? <laughs> Anything else we dare look at in our lives that has shown that he is ours and that we are his? The Bible says there is. His presence, his obedience, his forgiveness, and his very power shown in rising him from the dead. One last thought. I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, thanks for the guilt on Palm Sunday, Jamie. 
You're thinking, I came here hopefully being encouraged for the week ahead and you make me feel like I'm not a Christian. That was not my intent today. Here's my intent today. My intent today, as I started off with 1 John 5, 13, was to say if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a Christian. He has ridden into your life. So just set that one aside. But I think sometimes as Christians, it's easy, too easy to coast. Or maybe even it's too easy to engage in self-deception and talk a bigger game than is. And maybe Palm Sunday is designed to ask ourselves, to what degree is he really ridden into our life? Some of you are going to walk out of here saying, well, I really don't sense his presence all that much. And I got a long way to go with righteousness. And I'm like you, I don't always feel forgiven. And you know what? Victory? Well, if they only knew. Here's what I want you to do if that's you. I want you just to draw close to him. I've never been a great marriage counselor. Very few people come to me a second time for marriage counseling. (laughs) And the reason is, is because I've read very few books on marriage, and I don't read a lot on that stuff, and I'm not a counselor, and I'm a theologian, and I have a lovely wife who accepts that. And when Kim and I have gone through difficult times in our marriage, and we have, we haven't gotten to 25 years easy, but we have, um, you know what I've done? And I know it's going to sound so simple, but when I feel far away from Kim or whatever, I just move closer to her. (laughs) I just come home at the end of the day, and instead of saying I'm going to watch a bunch of NCIS reruns or whatever it is you do, or go out and work on my car, which is therapeutic for me, I say, hey, honey, let's go out to dinner. And and, and I just draw close, and I talk to her and ask her about her day, and she asks me about mine, and that's, hey, send some distance, and we just talk. And you know what? I, I know it sounds simple, but that usually tends to work. And sometimes there's issues to work out. We got our problems just like everybody else does. But we're still never going to solve them unless I draw close. Uh, the, the Bible says it's the same with God. Hebrews chapter 4, from I read for you earlier, says this. It says, let us draw close to the throne of grace so that you might receive mercy and find help in your time of need. So, so again, I, I mean, I could give you five books to read. I could tell you to, to, to do this, pray this, prayer, whatever. I, just draw close to him. And as you draw close, try this on for size. Tell him what a failure you are. Tell him you heard a a sermon, a wonderful sermon, from this pastor at Scottsdale Bible Church. And tell him that that, that he put all this guilt on you for not experiencing, you know, your presence, God, and not being very obedient and not always feeling forgiven and not having victory. Tell God that. Because you know what God says? He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So you come humbly to God and just say, God, I'm a mess. This is me. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised how much he will want to ride into your life. So let's all draw close this holy week. Let's draw close to a Savior who loves you more than you could ever imagine, enough so to ride front and center into your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Thank you that there's not one person, not one here today that is beyond the scope of your reach and your grace, your hope and your goodness. And so, Lord, as we applied kind of some rather brutal biblical markers of what it might mean to have you ride into our lives, I pray, Lord, rather than pressure, that this would create some liberty, that we'd be able to get honest about how much we experience your presence, your forgiveness, and even things like obedience and victory. And that, Lord, as we get honest, if if nothing else, we will draw close to the throne of grace. Lord, for those of us who uh, seem to be doing fairly well today uh, when it comes to these things, Lord, may we not get arrogant or proud about that, but, Lord, may we humbly just thank you for what you've done in our lives and for the closeness that we feel as we follow you and for the fact that you've ridden into our lives. So we celebrate Palm Sunday. We're grateful for this wonderful day that's so relevant to us today. And we pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.
See you guys next Easter, or next Sunday on Easter.